Hey everyone, welcome to Searching the Sacred. I am Jason Steffenhagen, and I just want to give you a little programming heads up before we launch into this episode. Normally, we like to give you six weeks worth of content before we take a little break. It's kind of our version of a six-in-one rhythm. But what we realized in taping episode five of season three is that it was going to be more than just a regular episode, longer than an hour that we normally try to aim for. And so what we're going to do is actually record three 30-minute episodes that will be released over the course of the next two weeks. It will still land within that six-week window that we aim for so that we are honoring our six-in-one rhythm. But instead of two one-hour episodes, you're going to get three 30-minute episodes, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation on prayer. And while I have you, before we start the episode, let me remind you of our Patreon page. Patreon is a site to support creatives, people that are authors, speakers, podcasters, and it's an opportunity to give a monthly or a one-time donation to support the work they're doing. So if you go to patreon.com and search Searching the Sacred, you can find our page and support us in that way. We also feel an extreme amount of support when you subscribe, when you rate, review, when you tell a friend about the podcast and pass on what we're doing. And so thanks for being a part of this community. Thanks for letting other people know about Searching the Sacred. And now let's get on with part one of our conversation on prayer. Welcome to Searching the Sacred. I'm Jason Steffenhagen. I'm Steph Spencer. And I'm Lisa Adams. We are hosting conversations about scripture for the curious, doubters, and hope seekers. We're inviting people to ask different questions, questions asked, by those who have been wounded and hurt, questions asked by those who have deconstructed and are looking for a reconstruction. We're creating space for love, kindness, justice, and curiosity. We will wrestle, we will question, we will dance, we will dream, we will wonder, we will be frustrated, and we will hope. We aren't searching for singular answers or solutions. We are searching the sacred. Everyone and welcome to season three. We are glad that you've been joining us on the journey of searching the sacred. We're going to be reading from a passage of the New Testament, and it's going to be a little bit of a longer read, and it's going to be a familiar read to many of us. And it's going to take a little extra effort to not just listen like you've always listened, and maybe even be talking along as you've maybe done in a church setting, but to just really listen. And then we're going to dive in and talk about it. And we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter six and specifically the Lord's prayer. And part of the reason why we're doing this is because we don't often record these and then put them out in the midst of a moment, but we are wanting to have a conversation about what do we do and how do we respond and who are we when the world is just not operating in a way that seems to make sense. Things like the war in Ukraine, the tragic uh, school shooting in Uvalde, and just the many other countless things that have happened in both the recent past and in the past and the upheaval in our country. And so we wanna have a conversation about it and see where the Lord's prayer can possibly take us. So. Lisa, take it away. So Matthew 6, verses 5 to 15. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. 
For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think that they will not be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. In this manner, therefore, pray, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Okay. Well, this puts the Lord's Prayer in a little bit of context, which we don't always do. I think a lot of us know it from reciting it in church or hearing somebody say it. Um, so I kind of first want to just allow some space for us to talk about what comes before and after and whether that shifts anything or brings any new questions to the Lord's Prayer itself, um, to hear it in this greater context of the Sermon on the Mount, which actually begins in Matthew 5, <laughs> in the beginning of Matthew 5 with the Beatitudes, which many people are familiar with. And goes all the way through. It's several chapters long. And the Lord's Prayer is kind of right in the middle of this much longer conversation. Um, this was just a little bit of bookend around that, uh, this little section of it. So I'm curious for you guys if anything popped already. I would like to know about the secret. And the hypocrites and the heathens. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which is that section that we don't normally read, like the Lord's Prayer, like, okay, there's kind of like, it starts with this whole thing about the hypocrites and the heathens and the secret. And so like, what is all of that? And how does that inform how we hear the Lord's Prayer? That becomes a part of more this Midrash realm of how to explore it. We were, we were talking before we press record, there's a lot about prayer that's more of a theological conversation. And that's not our um, sweet spot. We're in the sweet spot of Midrash. Let's look at the scriptures. Let's dive in and wonder what's underneath. And that might take us more to these introductory verses than the Lord's prayer itself. Um, and that's okay. Maybe we'll kind of hear and see some new things there. Yeah. I think in light of what we kind of set up this episode to have in, in mind the tragic shooting in Uvalde, Texas and, you know, the war in Ukraine or in other, you know, situations. When I think of like hypocrites or you know, these heathen, what, however we want to frame these words, which we might need to dive more into to define. But the first thought that comes to my mind is like, kind of like not capitalizing on tragedy, but like only showing up in tragedy to like offer thoughts and prayers. And, mm -hmm. you know, and it, and it can be like those really long, like passionate prayers for like healing and for, you know, God's presence, which is all accurate and all good but often not followed up with a tangible response that says, how can we prevent this from ever happening again? How can we meet people in a tangible way that are hurting and are broken? 
how can we maybe use this as a motivation to look at our own community situation and you know is it possible that this could happen in my community and what could we do be doing to prevent it um i think there's always a another question it's important to offer thoughts and prayers it's 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 important to to want god's spirit to be present in people's lives when they are at their most broken but it's another question to ask what do the people of christ do in that moment other than just pray well and that's an interesting um when we when we broaden out to more of the sermon on the mount even just going into the beginning of matthew 6 1 through 4 which we started at verse 5 that's about concretely giving your resources to people who are in poverty so before talking about prayer Jesus talked about giving your resources. So even that order of things makes a difference. He's not saying prayer first. He's actually talking about giving to the needy first and then talking about prayer, um, right? How, how might that even inform these sort of conversations that they both belong? And even as Jesus is saying, like, don't do it this way, he's saying, and they'll have their reward, like that belongs. And think bigger, think differently. There's a lot of stuff in secret, though. Like there seems to be an emphasis on secret, which makes me wonder about either the setting, like what's happening then, or if that's actually like some sort of cautionary tale for us now. Um, like why there's just a lot about secret. Yes, there is. <laughs> um, were you going to say something to some before I. Well, I love that Lisa's bringing that to our attention because we often think that spiritual leadership is just like a good thing and positive all around. But if the gospels are talking about anything, it's Jesus interacting with people that have potentially corrupted spiritual leadership and turned it into both a financial and a power uh, game. And for us to not think that that's still possible today is to be completely naive about what's going on in our world. And so mm -hmm. I love that we're going to explore that. So I think in order to explore secret, I think we might have to start with hypocrite because here's a tendency that I think I at least have, I think I'm not alone is when I hear Jesus talking about a hypocrite, I assume he's talking about someone other than me. Oh, for sure. <laughs> the hypocrite is the other guy. <laughs> yeah. Don't pray like the other guy. Like you're doing, like, I'll help you do a little bit better, but you're not the hypocrite. You're not the heathen. And so let's start by opening ourselves up to how are we the hypocrite? How are we the heathen? How does that inform how we hear the rest <clears throat> of it? So I'm going to actually read from Miriam Webster okay. <laughs> about the, because here's, here's, and I'm actually going to give that an introduction first. When we are thinking about the context of the New Testament, we have two contexts that are really important that both inform how Jesus speaks. One that is often ignored is the Hebrew scriptures. That's a part of what we're doing in this pot. We're going back. There's a story that came before that Jesus is a part of. That is one large part of the context that Jesus is coming into. But another context that is often ignored in my experience, and my this is not everywhere, has been the Greek culture. So we talk about them being occupied by the Romans, but that occupation by the Romans is on the heels of hundreds of years of Greek culture. So, um, and that matters when we're thinking about 
um, how Jesus is, is talking and the assumptions he is going to make about the kinds of things that people are familiar with or the kinds of things um, that have already happened. So um, for instance, I want to just get some dates out there that can even affect how we hear Greek culture because we, this actually, this reminds me of like, if you were, I don't know if TikTok people who are on TikTok, but there's like, like you think you know his there'll, there'll be videos about like you think you know history, but this and this happened at the same time, or this happened after this because we don't put him. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Um, TikTok. What's TikTok? Yeah. <laughs> oh hush. <laughs> <laughs> um, Thought we were old. Yeah. Um, so this becomes a little bit like that, in my opinion, for like the Bible in its context of Greek culture. So. Um, when we're thinking about Greek culture, Homer wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey in 750 BC. So whatever characters are in the Iliad and Odyssey or whatever influence Homer has had happened 750 years before Jesus. Socrates did his um, philosophies and, and wisdom around between 470 and 399 BC. So 470 years before Jesus is Socrates. Plato is 428 to 348. Again, four to three to 400 years before Jesus. Aristotle is 384 to 322. So when we're thinking about the Greek influences of Homer, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, those have been influences for hundreds of years on Greek culture and thought. The Greek empire took over the realm where Jesus lives in the 300s BC. The Greek empire is really who is conquered by the Romans and why the Romans are in charge. And there was a little period of time there in the Maccabean revolt that the, that the people were in charge of themselves. That's why um, Hanukkah is celebrated is to memorialize those times. But by and large, the area where Jesus is talking has been under Greek influence for 300 years. And that Greek influence has hundreds of years of immersion in Aristotle, Socrates, Homer, all of that train of thought. And so when we're thinking about the Greek words that Jesus is using, it's helpful and important to think about things like the Merriam-Webster dictionary and how it talks about the Greek origin of hypocrite. Um, because culturally this would make sense. So I'm going to, that was a long intro to this reading from the, the dictionary of all places. So the word hypocrite came into English from Greek, hypocrites, which means an actor or a stage player. The Greek word itself is a compound noun. It's made of two Greek words that literally translate as an interpreter from underneath. That bizarre compound makes more sense when you know that actors in ancient Greek theater wore large masks to mark which character they were playing. And so they interpreted their story from underneath their masks. So that Greek word took on an extended meaning to refer to any person who was wearing a figurative mask and pretending to be someone or something that they were not. So everybody in Jesus's audience is going to be connecting hypocrite to actor, to they have seen plays where people are wearing a large mask. That would be what comes to their mind when they think of hypocrite, somebody wearing a mask, playing a part for the sake of the stage. That very long thing, to, how does that affect how we think of the word 
hypocrite, as Jesus uses it. Well, he <clears throat> ties it directly to the synagogue. Like Jesus is tying it to the, the religious leaders of the time. I'm not going to sit like I, it's that space where I want to be careful and not say like, this is just about Jewish leadership. Cause it's not mm-hmm. It's about like, there's a, in, I mean, well, synagogues aren't even just strictly Jewish anyway. Mm-hmm. I, there's a way to like, I just feel like this is a, I want to keep holding some of that stuff that Jason also brought in the beginning of like, I just want to be careful and not just say like, this is just about the synagogue. Like this is, that particular position is our, these are, these are our pastors. These are our religious leaders across the board here. Yeah. I think whenever we hear Jesus talking about religious leaders, it is very important to do that work of that Lisa just did of not connecting that to Judaism, but connecting it to religious power. Jesus is speaking against how people are holding their religious power, which is not necessarily about the particular kind of religion it is. It's more about the kind of religious power they're asserting or how how they're living that out. And so to say there are religious leaders that he is tying to the stage, because again, at this point in time, the word hypocrite is not common, like the way we think about it now, where it's somebody who's in a contradiction, that's not how they would hear it. They would hear it as a mask. Which is super familiar as like when I was on staff at a church and um, doing pastoral things, there's a certain way that it was always a mask. There is always something in between me and what I'm doing, um, like putting my best self forward, even when I'm a mess. Um, Like in certain seasons, like my life was falling apart. There was nothing like I certainly wasn't doing the things that I was telling you. Like I wasn't reading the Bible every day like I was asking everybody else to do. I wasn't, my prayer life was non-existent, but in some ways it was like, fake it till you make it. (laughs) But it was a mask. Like it was a way of like, this is what, this is what I think it should look like. And I want you to see me this way, but that is not what was true. And so I've like, it feels very familiar because it, it, I remember this, like, I remember feeling this way. I just think it's so interesting because I totally agree with you, Lisa, like as, as a pastor of a church who has to speak like 48 out of 52 weeks a year, like, you know, there's not like weeks I can just get up there and be like, I'm sorry, I got nothing. Like I got nothing. I'm, I'm spent. The kids were, it was just a week and you know, things at home aren't great. Or, you know, actually the board meeting we had this week just really threw me off because no one likes where I'm going and I just don't really love leadership right now. I mean, like whatever it is, it's, it's like, okay, I have to put the mask on of like, we're here to do something positive and talk about this thing that we're all, we we all really believe in. And, you know, can there be a week where it's like, I struggle with that belief or I struggle with that type of leadership. Um, And I'm, I'm trying really hard not to have that be overly unique to like spiritual leadership but at the same time I can't help but think if I was like and this isn't a knock on anything but like if I was selling shoes for a living I'm not exactly worried about being a hypocrite now I have to like have good customer service but I'm not expected to talk about authenticity and vulnerability and like you know brotherly and sisterly love to my customers if I'm selling them shoes like I'm not there to represent that I'm there to like just give them a good experience buying shoes. And so am I a hypocrite for doing that or am I doing my job? And and like, 
And that's where I think the lines get blurred really quickly about how we navigate spiritual leadership. Um, and then what are the expectations that are put on us as we are leaders? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe that gets to the part of the verse that says that these religious leaders are doing this um, because of how they are seen. Um, and so it's like he's specifically naming that the religious leaders are being hypocrites, which again, what he's then saying is they're being actors. They're putting on a mask and they're praying publicly in a particular kind of way because of how they will be seen for that. And so I wonder if it's it's if it's connected to that because of like it and to say there is a way that this is a wrestle just to, like Lisa, yeah, you are expected and and Jason, like, yeah, what is it? I got to do my job. And so is there something in that so that they are seen, so that we are seen? Does that so that make a difference for what this is? And and along with that, in the next line, and I'm reading from the, I think the NRSV, but it says, like, truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. Like, so there is something they're getting out of that. Like, and it, and it doesn't say that that's all negative. I mean, it just says they've received it. Like, so there's like something greater about praying in secret or doing this in a more less hypocritical way, right? Like taking the mask off and being authentic. There's like, there's something more there. Yeah. I mean, it's that interesting dance a little bit, right? Like with power and, um, like numbers and like, there's an interesting dance of like thinking about like, so that you can be seen by other people. Um, there's an idea that the, if we put up perfection, more people will see it and then be more attracted to it and more people will join in. Like there's actually like this, uh, equation that plays out with it. Like, it'd be one thing if you did it. I don't know. Like, I'm trying to think of like, when, when is putting on a mask helpful? Cause I don't know that it's always bad. I don't like, I don't know that our messiest selves are supposed to like show up. Well, and part of it's like responsible. Like I don't need a congregation to know every detail of my personal life. And cause I don't need, you know, a hundred best friends, you know, I need like two or three best friends that like truly know the inner workings of my life and can navigate that with me. If I go up on a stage with a microphone and tell everybody what's going on in my life, that's like not healthy version of community because not everyone is at that intimate level of relationship with me and 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 I won't be with them. It's not that's not the the healthy balance that we're trying to strike. And so um yeah, but I mean, Jason like when you say it, then I think about it and I'm like, you know, this is the thing that makes it so jacked up in so many ways is like church leadership has this individual core leader at the top of the thing that doesn't have the, like the ability to like, um, like it's not, it's not like sharing everything, but there's a way that it's like people, people are always surprised. Like when a pastor like leaves suddenly like burns out 
or there's an affair revealed, or there's an addiction crisis, or like all the things that happen actually fairly regularly. I like it's not unique that that's something that's happening in church settings. And so it's actually interesting to think about um, how our leadership models are like set up and in what ways like how are we rewarded by it and what is this like what like what is the reward and like there's not Jesus isn't clear about the reward but it feels like in some ways this just feel like so much like power like power is the reward and like putting on a good mask means you're going to probably be you know like you stay in position you get a good raise um it's costly on some other ends though you know like I think about like for me, it almost cost me my marriage. Like, right. Yeah. Like there is, there's a particular level of cost to wearing a mask. Yeah. Um, depending well, I mean, on it's the very, it it's a very peerless existence in, in yeah. too many ways. If you don't have peers, then you don't have people you can really be truly vulnerable with because nobody, nobody can really know what you're really going through because they're not, it, it, you don't know how safe that space is. And, you know, I think that's one of the miracles of the New Testament where it talks about more of a plurality of leadership. Like it, it holds up things like, you know, being prophetic and teaching alongside hospitality and caring, you know, as, as like, you know, the gifts that the spirit gives people are not meant to be like hierarchical, but they're meant to be like reflective of God's spirit present in the community. And I think humans have said, well, that's really great plurality, but we do need someone to make the final decision. And so there's an X, that's where we get the hierarchy and, you know, that's where it can get kind of dangerous, um, obviously. And, and maybe the, maybe what is happening here as we wrestle with this is that um, we need to think about like, what does it actually mean to not wear a mask? So does it mean that I have to cry and about everything that's wrong and share every detail of all the things, or does it mean I'm not hiding? And is there a difference between not hiding and revealing everything? Um, and what is it to sort of wrestle with that to say, like, it reminds me of our, the wise sage, Brene Brown, who in a podcast I heard once, um, talked about vulnerability and that, and what it is to be able to be vulnerable without sharing everything with everyone and to not equate those two things as the same thing. Um, and that she, one of the things she said in that podcast that stuck with me is she knows that she's ready to talk about a thing when someone else's response to her sharing um, doesn't have to look or be a certain way for her to feel good about having shared it. That to her, that's a part of how she would define not wearing a mask is I'm not looking for anything from you. Mm. And that vulnerability can also be a way to wear a mask because I'm putting on this story because I want you to respond to me in a certain way versus I am me, you are you. Let's share space with one another which might mean I don't reveal certain things, but that doesn't, but not revealing certain things might not have to mean I put a mask on. Right. I think that's really healthy. You know, I used to lead a small group program with college students and I would always tell the leaders, cause we would talk about Brene Brown and talk about vulnerability. 
And a lot of them have that kind of like, I have to just be fully authentic with my students and I got to tell them everything. That's like what an authentic leader does. And, you know, I, I, I always said to them, do you think it'd be really inauthentic if I walked into a meeting one time and said, you know, this has been a really challenging week with us at home as parents. And my wife and I haven't always seen eye to eye, but, you know, we're making it through it and we're talking to our community and those closest to us. And I'm showing up as best I can tonight. And I really am excited to lead you, but I need you to know that I'm holding a lot of other things at the same time. And I asked my students, I was like, do you think that what I shared was vulnerable? And they were like, well, yeah. And I said, do you know any of the specifics about what happened at my house? They're like, no. And I was like, and do you think that I'm, I have channels to work on that, that are healthy? And they're like, yeah, it sounds like you do. And I was like, okay. Maybe that's how we try to navigate this maskless existence while also protecting, you know, these core relationships and the spaces where we need to operate as leaders and as people and, and the complexity of all that. Well, maybe I will say in response to that, that I am on this day that we are recording the podcast, I am tired. <laughs> Um, that's affecting how I'm showing up today. Um, and you can't always be your best, most energetic self on podcast recording day. <laughs> I'm tired. I'm a little like emotionally walled off because I know that I just, I'm too tired to hold my feelings. Well, so I've sort of walled some of them off today because I know that I'll kind of fall into them. Um, and that's something about how I'm showing up today. You're not alone, Steph. As I shared before, as I shared before we started recording, it was a, a wonderful, beautiful weekend, but it was also a tiring weekend. And when I'm tired and then I start thinking about things like the current events that have happened in our world, that combination of frustration with tiredness tends to lead me to like speak in ways that are less than kind. And so part of you may have picked up on that a little bit already. <laughs> and also like, I'm trying to guard myself from oversharing when it's, um, I, I want to, I still want to do so with respect um, and humility. I think I'm always trying to correct a little bit of space. For me, I've found that most of the time um, in my experiences, it hasn't been that people are oversharing, they are hiding. Mm -hmm. And so I think I try to correct that in some ways. So I probably share more than um, others in some, because I, like, I have such a strong feeling towards it in the ways that it, um, like those hidden things are like, it. maybe that's part of the secret conversation too. Like sometimes those hidden things are, um, they're really dangerous. They're harmful to other people. They harm people deeply. And um, I've just seen it too often in, in church leadership that um, there's a lot happening that nobody knows about. Mm -hmm. And so I, like, it's this tension of like, yeah, when you don't have things to hide, there's probably good, <laughs> there's good vulnerable sharing and good work to do. And then 
uh, when you're hiding things, there's a different, um, probably like that internal work. And I don't know how you, you balance it, but there's this, there is a weird tension, it, which I feel like also is like Jesus's call to name. Don't be like people who are putting on masks in front of everyone. Like this message about prayer isn't to the religious leaders necessarily. They might be a part of it, but like, it's actually to everybody else. And it almost feels like a cautionary tale of like, be aware of what's happening. Like be aware that you are, there is a stage presence here. Be aware of the humanity and the realness of who people are. Um, not in a, I don't know. It doesn't feel like it's as like with the Greek meaning of hypocrite. It doesn't feel like it's quite so like slander, like this awful word about who they are. It's just more like you wear the mask. Right. I mean, that context is really great for when we're thinking about this Sermon on the Mount. So when we think, when we go back to the beginning of Matthew five, we see that it's people that have started to follow after Jesus. It's very early on into what Jesus is doing, but he's been healing people. He's been teaching in the synagogues. People are like curious about what he's doing. A crowd is gathered. And so he goes up on the side of a hill and starts teaching. He starts that teaching by talking about how the whole crowd that's gathered is blessed. That's how I just, we just did a lovely study on the Beatitudes with our gospels group recently. And we're just talking about this picture of Jesus walking around and touching the shoulder of someone who was mourning and saying, you're blessed touching like that. The Beatitudes are him actually like calling people out who are there and saying this whole crowd is blessed. And then he tells the whole crowd to shine. And like, but this is like regular people who are sort of asking perhaps the question that we ask of what is it to pray? Like, what am I shooting for? What's the aim? What does it look like to follow God in these confusing times? And that Jesus is saying, don't aim for putting on a mask. Like those, like you think that like, as you're kind of trying to find your way right now, that's not your target. Neither is your target, the heathen, which is actually um, more like the word Gentile. Um, that it's, it's a particular form of the word for Gentile, maybe a little stronger, but there, then we're thinking about a different kind of religious leader, probably where we're thinking in, when we're thinking about the religious leaders in verse five, we're thinking about probably those, their Jewish religious leaders of that culture and time, again, remembering not to be anti-Semitic as Lisa already warned us. But then if we're thinking about other people, when we're thinking about praying with those repetitive words, that's probably something again, in that Greek culture, those Greek temples that would have existed and been around for hundreds of years by the time Jesus came around. There's also a model of prayer that people would see there where people go before the gods and plead and plead and plead with specific words repeated in specific ways to try to get a God to listen to them. And there's a way Jesus is saying, that's not the aim either. It's not, don't, don't aim for that version of religion. That's kind of interesting that you say that, like, it's not about like, it's not about like this repetition of the words and whatnot, but like Jesus does give us words that we are repetitive. Like we are, we all have them memorized and they are repetitious. So I'm like, that makes it, I'm very curious now about like what's happening there. If like, if Jesus is pointing towards don't do this, but like, what have we done that? Are we doing that with that? Like, what do we like? What does that mean about this prayer? Well, and there's, there's, um, so the word there is not, I don't know enough about Greek to know exactly, but it's a, it's not a common word. It's, um, bato logeo, um, which is not just to repeat, it's to stutter or to use vain repetitions or tedious words. <laughs> You'll probably want to edit this. I'm putting that out there, but I'm like, that reminds me of people who fake that they speak in tongues. 
<laughs> like I like, yeah. Like it's now the I'm, idea, but it, I mean that could connect. So this idea of vain repetition, repetition or tedious words is not necessarily saying repetition in and of itself is bad. But again, if we're thinking about the cultural context, there's a way that both cultural contexts I brought up earlier referenced here. There's the cultural context of the Hebrew Bible and the religious culture that has been around and developed. There's also the context of the political culture, which is the Greek culture. And Jesus is really holding up examples from both and saying, this is, it is neither your goal to be like these religious leaders who are putting on masks, nor is it your goal to be like these more quote unquote secular leaders, but a different form of religion where they're, they're using all of these tedious words to try to catch a God's attention because it's because that model of prayer is saying you have to say certain things in a certain time in a certain way for God to listen to you. That'd be the idea of the tedious is that you're having to get the attention of a God who's not concerned with you. Neither of those is prayer. There's something about secret and there's something in the words of the Lord's prayer that are to come. That is a better model that again, this crowd of people who are hungry, who are looking for, for God, this is what you're shooting for a crowd. Yeah. I'm kind of struck by like trying to like step back and look at it from like, you know, as opposed to like, you know, microscoping in but like a little bit of zooming out and there's a little bit of like hey before you start doing this number one make sure that you're actively doing it like don't just pray about it make sure you're actively involved in like if you care about the poor make sure you give to the poor like don't just pray for the poor give to the poor which to me says um you probably don't know what to pray for unless you're in relationship that's what that kind of screams to me. Like, how can you possibly pray for people that you don't know that well? You don't know their circumstance. So don't pretend like you do. So get involved. And then you, have, you, might, you might have some prayers. Um, and when you have those prayers, it, it might be easier attempting to like use those for your own benefit. Um, but you might want to start privately first. Um, you might want to just start with God because uh, you might need to work out some things as you're praying and there's a, there's a space for that. And it's not probably with the microphone in a stage, but it's probably, um, personal. Um, and then it can maybe expand from there, but I don't know. That, that's kind of the, I don't know. I'm feeling that from like a, when I zoom out of this a, a, a little bit. Well, it's sort of, I mean, I feel like what you're saying there is like, ask what, why you're praying or why you think you need to pray or what you're praying for. So like there's, and there's two examples, like if you're praying because you're wanting to look a certain way, because you think religious people should do it in a certain way and that's behind it, then go do that in secret instead, because that'll help you take off the mask. If, if, if your struggle is, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, trying to look a certain way go into secret instead. If your struggle with prayer is you think you have to pray the right words at the right time to get God's attention, then verse eight, remember that God knows um, things before you ask them. You don't have to pray in a certain way to get God's attention. Um, God's already listening. So knowing those two things, knowing that you don't have to wear a mask, knowing that you don't have to try to get God's attention. Now we're oriented. That's sort of the zoom out, yeah. I think, that you're saying. Now yeah, we're oriented yeah. to what prayer is and isn't. 
And now that we're yeah. oriented, let's think about the kinds of words that make a good prayer. Right. Right. And, and, and one of the, and not to jump us ahead here, but one of the, the ideas that I heard from someone, I can't remember exactly where I heard this, was that when disciples asked a rabbi how to pray, it was more than just like, can you remind us about what prayer is? Because I mean, because it, it seems like everybody knows what a prayer is to some degree. It's communicating with the divine and communicating with God. And like, they seem to know how to do it. Maybe they don't do it appropriately, like you're saying, right? Like they do it to get power and they need to do it in secret. Or they are, you know, as you said, thinking they have to say the right words and they need to be reminded that God already knows. But that when a rabbi instructs people on how to pray, it's kind of like they're teaching them what things matter. And like, this is, these are the things to be thinking of when you pray. And, and then we get the Lord's prayer, um, which, you know, we, we might have a little time for now, but is, is an, is an orientation prayer, um, in a lot of ways, um, or a reorientation prayer in a lot of ways. Well, and that, I mean, the conversation we had before we pressed record about prayer that kind of led us here was just noticing and naming and being honest that the Bible has remarkably little instruction about how to pray, pray, um, how to pray, <laughs> how to pray. It's, it's just like people, it'll say like this person prayed or they asked for prayer. Like there's lots of instruction about sacrifice. There's lots of instruction about the law when it was a when it was a theocracy, you know, in the promised land, there's lots of instructions about different pieces of things and there's very little instruction about prayer. So it even makes sense that people would be asking their teachers, like, how do you pray? Like there's this thing that we all seem to do or we're supposed to do, but it's hard to know exactly what to do. And how might these words of Jesus be giving us that sort of orientation to prayer? Hey everybody, thanks for joining us in part one of our three-part conversation on prayer from Matthew chapter 6. Check out your podcast feed later this week for part two, which will focus on the first half of the Lord's Prayer. We're excited about where this conversation is taking us, and we look forward to doing it with you. Thanks again for joining us on Searching the Sacred. This podcast is a partnership between 40 Orchards and Processing Faith. 40 Orchards invites people to wrestle through biblical texts using the ancient Jewish concepts of Midrash. In a 40 Orchards study, every question is safe, everyone is welcome, and every voice is valued. We believe there's room for all of us. No person and no question is off limits because we know that together we can expand each other's experience of what is sacred, whole, and good. You can learn more about 40 Orchards and sign up for a study by going to 40orchards.org. That's 40orchards.org. Processing Faith is a space created by Jason Steffenhagen for people to do exactly that. Process their faith. It's not one thing, but more like a good recipe. It's like one part pastoral care, one part theological exploration, and one part wrestling with all the questions. You can learn more about Processing Faith and sign up for a free 45-minute session by going to ProcessingFaith.com. Thanks again for joining us on Searching the Safe.